You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes, and with me today is the world champion of public speaking, Aaron Breverly. Hey, Aaron, how's it going, man? Pretty good, Tony. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's awesome to have you back. Aaron was our guest on episode 25, which feels like a million years ago, especially since we're in quarantine. We aired Aaron's original episode, episode 25, back in August of 2019. Aaron and I got on the phone a couple weeks ago, uh, needing some human contact. I know Aaron's more the introvert. I'll I'll, uh, I'll play the extrovert, which shouldn't be too difficult for me to do. Um, but yeah, we we got on the phone. We talked about what this means right now and how we can maybe turn some of these opportunities with the time that we all have being stuck inside to use this to our advantage to really develop some personal branding content to develop new content that we can distribute online. And funny enough, the world champion of public speaking is developing his own YouTube channel about public speaking. So (laughs) thanks for coming back on the show, Aaron. Really appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. So Let's not uh, let's not hold off any longer. I'm going to actually share the video right here and we're going to watch this together and watch your world champion public speech from 2019. Let's tune in right now. Good. Aaron Beverly, an unbelievable story, an unbelievable story. Aaron Beverly. The contest chair was relieved. My title is only three words long. (laughs) But friends, why is this story unbelievable? June 2018, I fly to India to attend the wedding of my friend Brandon and his fiance, Devika. Brandon and family are white, Devika and family are Indian. And I am the only black man there. (laughs) I can't help but feel different. But I try my best to blend in. I buy formal Indian wedding attire. What do you think? I even participate in a sacred Indian wedding ritual, protecting the groom's shoes. During the car ride to the wedding, my friend Sunit explains this ritual. When Brandon takes off his shoes during the ceremony, Devika's bridesmaids will try to steal them. The groomsmen protect the shoes from the bridesmaids. If they win, they hold the shoes ransom, forcing Brandon to buy them back. It's a game, Sunit says. I think it sounds like a spy movie. (laughs) Sunit says, Aaron, the bridesmaids will try sweet talk, they will try deception, but don't give the shoes to anybody. Will you accept this mission? Quick fact about me. When I am given a mission, I take it very seriously. I look at Sunit and I say, I accept the mission. (laughs) At the wedding ceremony, Brandon takes off his shoes. I swoop in, grab the shoes, sit down in the front row. Smooth, stealthy. I feel like a black James Bond. (laughs) The leader of the bridesmaids walks over. She smiles at me. But gentlemen, 
Have you ever seen a girlfriend or wife smile, yet at the same time, you just felt scared? <laughs> I call her the ominous smiler. She says, Aaron, you look very handsome today. I say, thank you. Could you pass me Brandon's shoes? No. <laughs> Sunit said, the bridesmaids will try sweet talk. Don't give the shoes to anybody. But Aaron, she says, that's against Indian tradition. When I hear that, the global ambassador within me gets nervous. I don't want to cause an international incident over a pair of shoes. I can see the headlines. Idiot, ruins wedding, and India-US relations. I almost hand over the shoes, but remember Sunit, they will try deception. Don't give the shoes to anybody. I say no again. Then the ominous smiler, she moves closer. She says, and I quote, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, but you will give us the shoes. I am now scared for my life at this wedding. However, I must protect the shoes because when I have a mission, I take it very seriously. So I curl over in my seat, I press the shoes against my chest, and this is how I watch the wedding for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> the ominous smiler tries to steal the shoes, but I hold firm. Then she disappears for 20 minutes before taking a seat to my right. She says, Aaron, I don't care about the shoes anymore. You win. I say, do I look like a fool to you? <laughs> but she doesn't move. I think I won. Sunit runs over. He's ecstatic. He says, Aaron, I'm proud of you. I say, thank you. You took this mission very seriously. I say, that's right. Now, give the shoes to me. No. <laughs> Sunit said, don't give the shoes to anybody. The ominous smiler disappeared to recruit backup, and I know a traitor when I see one. <laughs> then the ominous smiler pounces. She starts pulling my arms. Sunit joins her. Two versus one. They pull, I pull, but I hold firm. The other bridesmaids run over. Five versus one. They pull, I pull, but I hold firm. The other groomsmen run over. I think, yes, the cavalry has arrived, but they joined the bridesmaids. <laughs> Eight versus one. They pull, I pull, but I hold firm because when I have a mission, I take it very seriously. They said, Aaron, just give us the shoes. I said, never. <laughs> Keep in mind, the wedding is still going on. Devika's family is watching the ceremony as if nothing else is happening. I start wondering, is this normal? <laughs> then the ominous smiler signals the wedding photographer. And this dude is huge. He puts down his camera. Then he starts charging. He jumps on top of me. Nine versus one. They pull, I pull, but I... I lost the shoes. <laughs> Brandon paid 10 times what those shoes were worth. But what makes this story unbelievable is not the shoes, 
nor the events. It is the context behind that game. That game is designed for the families of the bride and groom to get to know each other, which means that among white and Indian families, a different, lonely black man was accepted like family too. We experience so much divisiveness nowadays that acceptance despite difference seems unbelievable. But there are people who still believe in it. Do you? Open your culture, your mind, your heart to people who are different from you. Show the world that acceptance, despite difference, is not an unbelievable story. This is your mission. Take it very seriously. Contest chair. Wow, Aaron, amazing, amazing. I can see why you won. That that wasn't hard. You seemed really confident at the end of that too, which I love when you turn <laughs> to the contest chair and you're just like, mic drop, I got this. <laughs> all right, so first of all, congratulations. That's incredible. And, and if people do go back to episode 25, I'm pretty sure that you called it on that episode that you were gonna win the world championship and you went out and did it. So Amazing. Congrats. Really, really cool to uh, to see you achieve that. So let's take a step back. Let's talk about yeah. you had done this before in 2016. Um, you know, you you hadn't won. And we talked about this on episode 25. We talked about how that made you feel and, and how that sort of reinvigorated your ambition to to win the competition. So in preparation for this, what did you do differently? And how did you go about the process of preparing this speech? Yeah. So in 2016, when I competed, I left the stage knowing that I didn't give it my all. There was something that I left on the table. Mm -hmm. And that was when I decided that if I ever get back to the world championship of public speaking, I was going to make sure that I did better than what I did in 2016. So I wasn't necessarily trying to win the world championship of public speaking. Of course, that is always the desire, especially if you're in any competition. But my main goal was simply to do better than 2016. I was worried mostly about speech execution, making sure that I delivered my lines the way that I was supposed to, that I delivered the story the way that I wanted to. Also, if I did trip up, which I did back in 2016, I wasn't going to be worried about the judging or how people were going to mark me down on a ballot. I instead was going to focus on the speech and the message to the audience. That's, that's incredible. But on a more practical level, so if someone's listening to this 
And look, I, I mean, most people who are listening to this, maybe they are interested in competing in the world championship of public speaking through Toastmasters, maybe not. But either way, we all use public speaking in some format. And as yeah. Jerry Seinfeld famously said, uh, public speaking has been ranked the number one fear for decades, probably at this point, right? So that means at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. So <laughs> yep. looking more practically at it, let's say you were going to take I'll use myself as a, as a guinea pig. Let's say you were going to take me and you were going to improve my public speaking skills. What are sort of the best practices that you would start with before we even talk about turning on a camera to record content for social media distribution or online personal branding or a YouTube channel or something like that? What are the basics that you need to have foundationally for to to create a a public speaking disciple that follows in Aaron Beverly's uh, path. Well, well, honestly, honestly before, before you even start to speak regularly, you want to make sure that you find out why it is that you have the anxiety that you have or the fear that you have. You just quoted the Jerry Seinfeld quote. And, and it's true. It's true. A, lot a lot of people are definitely, are definitely afraid of public speaking. Of public speaking. I remember, I remember when, when I was younger, I wanted, I wanted for the world to end before I had to get up on stage and give, and give a presentation. I just wanted, I just wanted the higher powers to just take me out, take of, my me out of my misery. So, <laughs> when it came, it came to, to public speaking and getting, and getting on stage in front of people, I had to realize why I was actually afraid of public speaking. And, and I, will I will actually go out on, on the limb and say, I do not, I do not believe there is a such thing as fear of public speaking. speaking. People, People don't necessarily, don't necessarily fear, fear public, public speaking, speaking, just the general, general public, public speaking. speaking. What they what fear they is fear an aspect of public speaking. speaking. So you so may fear being judged, you may fear being embarrassed, and, and that's, that's what it was for me. I feared being embarrassed. So, so I had, I had a, traumatizing a traumatizing experience when I was a sophomore, sophomore in high school, or not, or not in high school, school, but in college. And that, that prompted me to say, okay, say, okay I, know I know what I fear. I, fear. I, know, I know how to how remedy, remedy that. that. And the and way that the way I remedy that, that is to practice. And, and the way that I decided to start practicing was to join an organization where I could get up time after time after time. Repetition is key. Just like, yeah, how, like you how you go to the gym for your muscle or your, or your public speaking skills, skills. I, go I go to Toastmasters International for my, my public speaking muscles. muscles. It's, it's something, something that you really need to confront and, and get, get that repetition in because, because that's, that's the only way, way, way that you can, can get better time after time again. So that's the first step, overcoming your fear and knowing how to combat that fear. Yeah, that's great advice. And to your point, the reference that you make to going to the gym is exactly right, right? It's all about the repetitions. We all start somewhere. And, and regardless of what endeavor you're going into, fear is the mind killer, as, as they say in the book Dune, right? This concept is a brilliant one. And I love that you're sharing your own personal journey that you, we all come from a spot of apprehension to some degree. Some of us just leap into the precipice on, on, on faith uh, sooner than others. That's all really, right? So we all start from a similar perspective in a similar place. I'm actually now listening to the audiobook War of Art, which is an excellent, excellent book. I just started it. I recorded an episode this past Friday that'll air after yours, probably, because we're doing this as a COVID-19 special release, you and I. 
but the guest that we had on the show was the CEO of Wild Foods Co., which is an online uh, health and wellness brand that that provides supplements. Really good episode. I recommend people tune in whenever that one airs after yours. But he talked about this book, War of Art. And one of the one of the things that the book starts out about is this concept of what holds back an entrepreneur or an artist, which I found really interesting is that the book, first and foremost, is talking about an entrepreneur and an artist in the exact same way that they suffer from the same kind of mental hurdles, because entrepreneurship is just a different form of creativity, really, and very similar to the artist's process, where you come up with this idea or some concept, and then you go out and execute it or manifest it in some other physical form and medium. And in this context, the book is kind of relating the two. And the first, pretty much the first chapter, the opening of the book is all about how you need to overcome resistance, which is your biggest uh, sort of battle to the creative process. And that's, he means resistance in the context of procrastination, resistance in the context of doing what's comfortable rather than what's uncomfortable, right? And that if you want to achieve greatness, like winning the world championship, you have to overcome that internal struggle to fight resistance. And he talks about it in the context that it's a daily battle, that even if you beat it one day, the next day when you wake up in the morning, you got to start all over again and overcoming these hurdles that step in your way, whether it's social media, whether it's negative articles about COVID-19, whether it's any of this stuff. So I appreciate that you have a process for sort of going to the gym, as you said, right? You get up and you just need to start doing your reps. I actually remember that in episode 25, one of the tips that you gave, and it stuck with me this long, is that you need to just start recording yourself because you need to get over that hurdle of seeing your face and hearing your voice on video so that you can then go out and create this content to post to others. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that is really useful. So then what's the next step after that? We're starting to get our reps. We're now starting to, to build past or break down this resistance slash fear, because fear is just another form of this concept of resistance. What do, what do we do next? So after you know what fear you have and how to combat that fear and you have a place where you can get that repetition. And to your point, even though we're kind of skipping a step for the recording yourself, if you, the faster that you can get over recording yourself and looking at your recording, the better off you're going to be. We just watched my speech and it doesn't pain me to watch myself speak anymore. But because it doesn't pay me to watch myself speak anymore, I'm able to look at the mistakes that I have made. I'm able to see opportunities for improvement. There were some instances in that speech where I said, hmm, I think I should have delivered that a little bit differently. I think had I been able to do it over again, I would have done it differently. So if you don't review yourself, you're not going to be able to do that. So get over right your fear of looking at yourself. The next step that you need to take is that you need to know who your audience is. So what is the audience looking to get? What type of information do they usually like to see? What mediums do they usually like to see it in? There are many ways that you can know your audience better. The simple way is to ask your audience. 
This doesn't matter if you are at work. It doesn't matter if it's at a Toastmasters meeting. It doesn't matter if it's some other presentation in another venue. You want to know who your audience is and you can just simply ask them, what do they want? What do they want to get out of it? What do they want to learn? If you are a professional speaker, you can get the background and demographics of your audience from the event organizers. The event organizers will be able to tell you how many people will be there, what their backgrounds will be, what their experience level will be. All of that is quality information that you will need to craft your presentation because what you don't want to do is prepare a presentation that you think is going to knock it out of the park, but because you prepared for an audience that was in your mind, you didn't necessarily prepare your speech for the audience that you actually had in reality. And if you don't give a speech to the audience that you have in reality, you are going to run the risk of bombing on stage. You're going to just fall flat. The audience isn't going to like it and it will basically tarnish your brand. Right. Makes sense. Now let's take just a, a, a real quick step back and talk about a practical approach to all of this, right? So when you're defining your audience, let's kind of work through that process together. We'll use your speech, your, your championship speech as an example. So what were you literally thinking about? What was the process that was going through your mind? And um, just as a quick sidebar, do you write this stuff down? What's part of your actual physical manifestation of your process? Are you just, I, I know you're thinking about it at least on the subconscious level, right? It's always running in the back of your mind when you've got something big like this coming up. But do you actually, for example, keep a notebook or a journal? Do you mind map? What are, what are some of the actual techniques that you use? And then walk us through the process that you literally used to define the psychographics of this audience like you're talking about. What, what was that like? Yeah. So I use an online application. I use an application called Evernote. And when I'm creating a document, I will start it off with my basics. So I will start off with KYA, know your audience. I will ask myself the question, who is my audience? In the case of my speech, I knew that my audience was a Toastmaster audience. And I had spoken to this audience before, so I already had some background and experience with that audience. So I wasn't going in totally fresh and new to this. But that Toastmaster audience, I know, one, they are international. So it's not just a US-based audience. They are going to come from India. They are going to come from the Middle East. They are going to come from China. They are going to come from Australia and South America. It's going to be a lot of different cultures in that audience. So I cannot give a speech that is going to be overly specific to a Western audience or a Western situation. It has to be something that is universally understood. And for me, that what was going to be universally understood, I believed was going to be the concept of unity, the concept of sharing your culture with another person, the concept of acceptance despite difference. So that's a theme that can be understood by everybody. It doesn't matter if I'm giving a specific story about an Indian tradition. The fact that the story is geared around the sharing of cultures and how I felt uneasy at first in that environment and how I was embraced, that is something that can be understood by people. So that is just an example of the way that you have to think about it. So for me, 
I knew my audience was international, so I couldn't use information that was too specific. I had to find a general way to help my international audience understand what it was that I was talking about. Very interesting. And, and thank you for sharing that. I think it's amazing that you you uh, found something to unify, because as you were talking about it, even I was just thinking about, man, what would I come up with that is something that would unify this very diverse audience, right? And, and not only diverse racially, but diverse from an age perspective, diverse from uh, um, a cultural perspective as well. And, and you're right, you found that one common thread that sort of tied it all together. I think that's really interesting. Now, what when you're doing your KYA process, your know your audience process, are there are do you have routine questions that you go back to that you ask yourself to help you parse out these things? Or is there just you kind of put it in your subconscious, you let it wrestle around a little bit in there. And then as it bubbles up to the surface, you 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 kind of do some form of testing internally, mentally? Are you are you thinking about how did you come up with that? Literally is my question. I'm really interested in what your thought process is that got you there. Yeah, definitely. And it is more of an internal process where I will think about a concept. And once okay, I know my audience now, I need to then think, what do I want to give that audience? What do I want that audience to do, think, or know by the time I am done speaking? And I try to summarize that into 10 words or less. That is going to be my central message. I call this step detox. So what do you want the audience to do, think, or know? And you summarize that in 10 words or less. So when I do that, I find my theme. I say, okay, this is what I want my audience to take away from this speech. And then I'll start writing my draft. So I will write out my entire draft and then I'm going to review it. Now, as I'm reviewing it, I start asking myself questions. I start being my own devil's advocate just to take you through my process as I was creating this speech that won the world championship. I had to balance the amount of information that was going into the speech. I didn't want, want it to be bogged down by too many details. But at the same time, I wanted to respect the culture that I was representing in that speech. So I had to find ways to explain it to my American audience, but at the same time, not dumb it down so much that my Indian audience is just, okay, like what, why is he talking about it like this? Why is he dumbing it down so much? So the way that I found myself doing that was to just put in enough details to move the plot along, but not necessarily go into the deep details of the kind of shoes that I was protecting. So I don't know the actual name of the type of shoes. And if I knew it, I probably would still badly pronounce it. And if I were to go into that many details, my American audience is going to start getting lost. So I had to try to find a balance that would respect that culture and still bring in my American audience. So I just told my American audience that I was protecting shoes. And the fact that I'm talking about the game itself still allowed my Indian audience to follow and enjoy it because they knew exactly what I was talking about. They actually knew those details. They could fill in all of those details themselves. So right. it goes into what I was saying before, where you have to think about the makeup of your audience, 
But as I'm going through my speech, I'm asking myself these questions. As I'm reading along, I ask myself, hmm, does this make sense? Is this too specific? Is this too general? Will everybody be able to understand this line? So when I write my speech out, I will literally review it line by line to make sure that it is, well, I wouldn't say perfect, but as close to perfect that I can make it. Right. And there's something musical about the way that you delivered it as well. And I don't know if that's a literal part of your process or if it just happens naturally coming together when you're making those cultural references at the end, there's some rhyming there. Then you end with the how, you know, you took your mission seriously. And this is now the audience's mission to go on and, and be more understanding and more compassionate one another, and that they should take their mission very seriously, where you tie those two really core concepts together. And I think when you're doing that, there's sort of a maybe a yin yang balance to the to the delivery of it. And it makes it much more palatable and much more engaging, I think, and impactful with the audience. Do you do that intentionally? Does it just happen naturally for you? What's your process there? What's what's that look like? It's definitely intentional. But there are ideas that will just come into my head naturally. Now, this could come from my past experiences in speaking and in storytelling. But the idea comes to my mind, and then I will write it down, and then I will test it out. And this is, again, where recording comes into play, because you mentioned the vocal variety that I had. So there were inflections that I used. There, were, there was alliteration in the speech with the acceptance despite difference. And... Right. That's exactly what it was. Acceptance despite difference. There's that sort of rhyming kind of musical way to it, that alliteration that you delivered it, which I thought was great. Yeah. Continue. Sorry. No, no worries. That all came through different ideas that would pop into my head. And then I would test it out. So I would first write it out, see if it looked good on paper. Then I would record myself giving that line. And then I would listen back to it. Now, there were times where I would say, hmm, that doesn't sound right, or I think I can say that differently. So as I listen to my speech, I'm going to think about how I can deliver it better vocally. So I will listen for any opportunities to incorporate some vocal variety, if I should incorporate an inflection here, if I should emphasize a point here, or if I should just pause. So that is something that will happen in the review stage of this process, where I will just continually challenge myself. So not only am I looking at the words now, but once I have it recorded and I'm listening back to the content, I'm also listening for how I can deliver it better. Also, at the same time, there may be some ideas that come into my head about how to move. Now, the key with my body movement is that I wanted to keep my body movement natural. Mm -hmm. So there were certain movements that I would just naturally do as I started giving out the, started reciting the speech in my just individual practice sessions. And I would say to myself, okay, that's a nice movement there. It feels natural. I want to keep doing that. So I would actually start to incorporate my body movements into the speech at that point. Very interesting. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, you want to add a lot of that because it creates more relatability with the audience, right? So that they're visualizing what you're going through at the wedding while you're trying to protect these shoes. I encourage anyone who's listening to this to either go to YouTube 
and um, search for Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Beverly. And that speech is, I think, the first thing that pops up. And it's also on your channel, which is Aaron W. Beverly on YouTube. You should definitely check that out. We're also recording this using a Zoom session. We're, we're staying safe and doing this remotely, of course, because of our COVID-19 quarantine. There's a little rhyming, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but so this will be on our YouTube channel as well. So for, for those of you who are listening, I do encourage you to, to jump on and check out the speech because I think the way that you deliver it in person also, your facial mannerisms, your physical mannerisms really add a lot to it. Obviously, there was a lot of laughter in the crowd and I have done speeches and, uh, you know, just not not anything like this, not even close, but I've done speeches, I, I've done this podcast, I've done some other things, some webinars here and there and stuff like that. And I'll try to introduce humor because I, I think that that's just so much more palatable when people are listening to you rather than just listening to you drone on about whatever it is. You can always add a little bit of levity to almost any situation to try to just soften the blow and make it a little bit more palatable to the listener. But let's talk about the process of being funny. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because usually I fall flat on my face to dead silence. You know, not even the crickets are chirping. That's how bad it gets sometimes. I just happen to be lucky that I have a little bit thicker skin. Criticism doesn't really affect me that much. I just stubbornly pursue an idea when when I think it's a good one. I am preparing for my brother's wedding. Who's, he's getting married in 2021. And uh, so I have a little over a year to plan my best man speech. I, I'm fortunate enough to to he that he asked me to be his best man. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. But at the same time, I want to make sure I crush it when I get up there, right? Because that's like, that's one of the things you want to get up there and you want to kill it. That's that's like the pinnacle of being being a best man. So I've already been thinking about it. And I, and I think the more you think about it, the more you massage it, the more you play with it, the more you kind of, you know, in a, a theoretical way, Rubik's cube the speech, right? You're moving these things around to see like, do the colors match up? Am I getting this right? Is, is it balanced? Does it flow right? And I have some things planned. I won't reveal anything here just in case someone's listening. Uh, but but you've inspired me largely to to really focus on these things. And there's only one person, my wife, who's equally my harshest critic. And I appreciate it because it, it, it helps uh, toughen me up. But um, and that is what I'm looking for. But she's the only one that I've been testing the material on. And and uh, there's there's some promise there. There's some promise there. But what what's your advice for developing a comedic routine that makes people not only makes people laugh, but by the way, going back to the fact that you're approaching such a diverse audience and you have many hurdles to overcome when you're trying to be funny because you have cultural differences, you have differences in terms of slang. And and uh, I know you found this thread of unity of, of cultures and that concept but how did you make them laugh on on a consistent basis? And did you hit all of the just a little behind the scenes? Did you hit all of the laugh notes that you thought you would get? Or did were there ones that you thought you'd get more laughter and you didn't or vice versa? Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot to dissect there. So to, to answer the question that I hit all of my laugh points. Yep, I hit every laugh point that I wanted. Now, did I hit every laugh point the way that I thought they would, they would hit? 
Not necessarily. So there was only one instance where I didn't get the laugh I expected, even though I still got the laugh. My opening line where I referenced my title only being three words long, that was actually a reference to my 2016 speech where I, if you listen to the episode episode 25 where we talked the last time, I had a 57 word long title. <laughs> and it was really just a a tongue-in-cheek uh, display of what we do in Toastmasters. So usually the way it works in Toastmasters, you say the person's name and you give the title of the speech, then you repeat the title of the speech and then you give the person's name. So that's the formal introduction for a Toastmaster speech contest. Usually the titles are really short, about three to five words long, but that I just took it to a whole new level with a 57 right. word title. <laughs> and it was, it just got so much laughter. But the line that I delivered in 2019, it got a laugh, but it didn't get the laugh that I was expecting. So I had assumed that more people would know about my 2016 speech. Right. And it could be the fact that they had forgotten about it, or it could have been that they were just totally new and didn't know about it at all. So it didn't get as strong of a laugh, but it still got a laugh. So I counted it. And even though it wasn't what I expected, as I said before, I wasn't concentrating on how the judges were going to mark me down. I wasn't concentrating on how long my laugh was. I just wanted to deliver my message. So I just went, went on and you mentioned before that there are times where you try something humorous and you just fall flat on your face. Honestly, there it happens is often. no, yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it happens for a lot of people and it happens often for a lot of people. So you, we right. talked about Jerry Seinfeld, like it's happened to him. He put out a special where he actually got heckled and this was Jerry Seinfeld after his hit sitcom. It was after he's made millions of dollars from being a comedian. He had totally thrown out all his old material and he was building everything from scratch. And he's right. going onto these stages. He's trying to practice. And there are times where he's just straight up bombing. He is doing horrible and people are heckling him. And this is Jerry Seinfeld. So you think, wow, how can he fail? But that's what professional comedians do. They go yeah. out and they test material. Sometimes some things will work. And when they work, they will double down on that and see if they can make it work better. But then there are times where something just falls flat. So they try to tweak it here or there to see if they can get something out of it. But if they can't get anything out of it, they just get rid of it. Because obviously to the audience that they are speaking to, it's not registering. It's not funny. So they need to just go back to the drawing board with that piece of content. It's one of the reasons why a comedian, whenever they go on stage, they will usually test out some new material, but they will, they will integrate it into a established routine. Right, exactly. I've actually been um, watching the uh, masterclass programming. I don't know if you've if you've tried it or if anyone who's listening has tried it. I highly recommend it. I mean, I'm I'm just a, a I'm addicted to searching for knowledge, which is a, a weird thing to be addicted to. But I listen to audiobooks all the time. I I you know I I watch masterclasses, and I'm not criticizing anyone. We all kind of you know zone out whatever way you zone out. That just happens to be my thing. But there's some really great masterclasses to that end. Steve Martin does one talking about setting up 
comedic routines in developing the process. And you actually see him meet with four other comedians where they work out their material and Steve Martin's like helping them to reshape it and to, to kind of edit the process. And Judd Apatow, who's the creator of the 40 year old version, Virgin knocked up, um, the 40 year old Virgin knocked up all of those comedic movies. This is 40, those kinds of things. Very, very, t uh, talented from a comedic perspective. He did stand up when he started out in, in his late teens and he talks about his experiences in stand-up in the masterclass and talks about developing a comedic routine. And to your point, he says, you just want one solid routine, one solid minute of comedy, and then it kind of rolls from there, right? Because you're going to have one good minute and like nine really crappy minutes. And then, you know, eventually you find something else that works and you start playing with that. And he also talks about Gary Shandling's process and how he used to develop routines that he would just have an idea at the top of his notebook, right? And he, under it, he would just, you would see him just playing with these jokes and these concepts, trying to develop something, right? Like um, the one routine, this is from that masterclass, and we, we can analyze it together a little bit, um, is Gary Shandling, I think, had in one of his notebooks, um, what if I had a hospital bed in my bedroom? And uh, it's all of these jokes about, well, we'd have a nurse on call to help us if we ever like throw our back out, you know, obviously making an alliteration to him and his wife uh, in in their in their bedroom, having intimate moments together. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, we could we could do all sorts of these other things because we have a hospital bed and he'd play with these ideas. And a lot of it's crap to your point, right? It's like 99.999% just total garbage. But you start to, you have to, you have to go through that process, I think, to, to develop some form of comedic routine. So how many times did you go over this speech? How many times did you test it out? Did you have a similar process? How many times did these laugh points and, 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 and joking parts of the speech get manipulated and massaged into something else? Well, the full speech, I started practicing the full speech about two to three months before the International Speech Contest Finals, so the World Championship of Public Speaking. But I also have started testing out pieces of that content well before then. The original story that I wrote was written on Facebook. It was a Facebook post, just a long form story wow. about my experience at that wedding. Wow. And one of the indicators that I saw for people enjoying it was in the comments, they would point out specific things. So obviously this is a signal that they are connecting with these points and that's something that I can continue to use. But in addition to that, I'm also thinking about what I personally think is funny. Now, this can be a double-edged sword, but this is honestly where it has to start. So when I right. originally wrote that piece, I was just writing it from the thought process of, okay, I believe this is funny. Maybe other people will think it's funny. Now, if somebody else was reading that initial draft, they would probably think, okay, a lot of this isn't funny. It's, it, it's, it's, interesting it's entertaining but it's not exactly all that funny so sometimes 
what you think is funny isn't going to be what somebody else thinks is funny, but there are different right. ways that you can practice that. And the way, one of the ways that I practiced that was just integrating certain pieces of content into my conversations. So for instance, something that you just said that when you would get on stage and you try humor, nobody laughs and even the crickets aren't chirping. So we both <laughs> laughed at that. So even though it was a slight chuckle, that's something that you could then say, okay, Aaron laughed at that. So he obviously thought that was a little bit funny too. So maybe I can take that to a larger audience now and I can test that out. So that was my mentality. The line that I give in early on in the speech where I say, and I was given the task of protecting the groom's shoes or to something to that effect, that generated a laugh. But to me, that wasn't funny. So this is the other way that you create humorous content is just through your casual conversations. So sometimes there's there's something that you don't find funny, but for some reason or other, people think it's hilarious. Right, I remember right. when I was actually in India, I was just casually having a conversation and I told them that I was given the task of protecting the groom's shoes and they chuckled. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Why did they chuckle? So I actually had a keynote speech to give the next day. So I said, okay, I'm going to see if I can incorporate this piece of content into my keynote speech. And then I gave that line and the majority of the audience laughed. And I said, okay, this is a line that needs to go in because they find it funny, even though I don't. So that's an example of that instance where you may not think it's funny, but they do. So that's another way that you can build that content similar to how you would build content if you think something is funny, but you're not sure if other people do or not. Hmm. Interesting. No, I like the way you you put that, by the way. I think I think you really broke it down there very practically. Uh, I remember Ricky Gervais, who who I'm I'm a huge fan of his comedy. I know it's a little extreme for some people's taste, but I love the way he does the Golden Globes. I love the way he's he's always kind of towing that tangential line of is he crossing a line? Is it too dark? Is it not too dark? Um, and he talked about this once. Uh, I forget if it was in a comedy special or in his uh, podcast that later was turned into the HBO show, the Ricky Gervais show. Um, but he he's mentioned before that when he became a comedian, he really just wanted to tell jokes on stage that would make his buddies at the pub laugh to your point. Right. And that was, that was it. I never really thought of it that way. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is really interesting that you're taking something like that, that, Hey, wait a minute, that, that got a little bit of a chuckle on this phone call or in this meeting that I was in, or when I was, uh, with someone to that end, um, there's been a joke that I've been telling that my wife hates that I'll share with you. That is that my wife's taking COVID-19 so seriously that she's enforcing social distancing within our household. And she hates when I tell that joke, but, but it's getting like some, a little bit of laughter. It's not perfect, but, but there's an idea there, right. That she's using. It's like the old, the old school joke with the, uh, with the headache, right. You have a headache every night. Um, it's kind of that context that, that she's using this as an excuse to keep me at a, at least at six feet of distance from her at all times. But she, she hates it when I do that. But, um, uh, yeah, to your point, I love that that concept of you you playing with these things that are working. I know in episode 25, when we recorded previously, that you mentioned that you have a um, 
a circle of trust, if you will, of people that you test your material on that you're comfortable with. I believe you mentioned your mom and, and some other family members and friends. Did you do the same? Do you still have that same process? Has that process evolved at all? Or do you still go to that, that process to run your material and to get a feel for it? Yeah. So similar to how I will practice pieces of my content in conversations with other people, I'll also practice those pieces of conversation with my family. And in these cases, they don't know that I'm practicing a piece of content. And it's just casually happening in conversation where an opportunity comes up and I think into my mind, this is just how my mind works. Uh, it, I'm not saying that you absolutely need to do this or that you'll be able to do this. It's just what mm -hmm. I do. It's my gift and I guess my curse at the same time. But <laughs> when a certain opportunity comes up, I think to myself, oh, wait, I have a piece of content that I can interject into this conversation. I want to see if it'll work. So that's exactly what I'll do. So I'll try it out and sometimes it'll work. And most times it won't. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> we share that. We share that. A lot of times you're just, <laughs> here I am on my face again. I got to get back up and try that one again. I, uh, I, I infamously remember doing a, a CLE, a continuing legal education thing for, for a room full of accountants and lawyers. I remember that when I, I was putting together and, and, you know, I'm a tax attorney. That's what I do full time. And um, it's hard to be funny about the internal revenue code or <laughs> or tax provisions that are coming out or anything like that. But again, I try to like, uh, you know, a it's my opportunity in a room full of 100 and some odd professionals. And um, and, you know, it, it's you put me in front of a mic and a podium, much like you, I'm going to try to make people laugh, even if it's just a little bit. So um so I'm sitting there and I remember, uh, and this is maybe a lesson and mistake for those who are listening to not do this, but um, the worst thing you can probably do is you tell a joke that you think was going to get a laugh and you give that laugh pause, like, wait a minute, you'll get it in a second and then the laughter will start rolling. So I want to give you some time to catch up. And that's the worst thing because it just makes it more awkward, I think. And so I just re remember delivering like these these jokes and kind of standing at the podium like. No, 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 no one. OK, all right. On to the next slide about internal revenue code, whatever it was. And um, we were talking about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and uh, um, Section 199A, which is the 20 percent uh, deduction. I'm boring. Aaron's falling asleep as we're talking about this right now. Um, but yeah, that was and I was just trying to make it a little bit more like you know, get a little bit of humor out of it. At the same time, I think like, the, you know, in today's world, that awkwardness can be uh, uh, funny to begin with. And so I, I you know, you kind of got to throw yourself into the abyss there when, you, when you're doing that. Is there anything else? Go ahead. No, go. No, I, I was going to just add on to that, that the fact that you do occasionally bomb that is a golden opportunity for self-deprecating humor. So Absolutely. you have that awkward pause and you just can make an observation like, hmm, that was awkward. And many times <laughs> you'll still get a little bit of a laugh. So <laughs> the audience that was basically not on your side before when you were trying to force in your humor, right. since it's done more naturally and it's really done to your expense and they can, under they can probably understand what you're right. going through, that's what's causing them to laugh. So one of the ways people will laugh is if we are laughing at 
somebody else else's pain. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And and self-deprecating humor is really kind of the intelligent low-hanging fruit, we'll say, because you when you're poking fun at others, they get defensive automatically, right? Human nature. So never a good thing to to go too directly. If you do it tangentially and you've really got a lot of just almost something that's that 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 we can't even really teach, right? Something that's innate that allows you to get away with that, then maybe you can. Like a um uh uh there there have been many comedians who are who are good at that, but it's a dangerous thing to tread. But to your point, self-deprecation is usually really easy um in terms of being palatable to the audience, but go ahead. So you, you used a little bit of that, obviously in your speech, when you're talking about yourself, when you're talking about these silly situations that you're in, when it's you against eight, when it's you against nine, when it's you against, uh, 10, right. I think is finally when you, you let up on the shoes. So how did you, obviously you're intentionally adding that in. You don't want to overly do it. How did you figure out what parts of the story to really kind of expand on that? Yeah, so, uh, and just to touch a little bit on more like humor theory. So I talk about, we talked about self-deprecating humor and that is one of the main pieces of humor that I use because that is a great way to have, I forget what the exact concept is called, but basically people laugh at other people's pain and it's a pain that they don't have to experience themselves but they can understand it so that makes it funny to them especially if the person giving it is obviously in good health and they know that it's benign enough that this person can joke about it so they feel safe to laugh about it too now the right. other method of humor that i will commonly use is what's called the incong incongruent incongruency model of humor so basically, you take a situation, but you basically tell somebody the opposite of it. So where your line, the just a while back about the crickets aren't even chirping, that's incongruent. So we usually know that when somebody gives a bad joke and nobody's laughing, that's when you hear the crickets chirping. But it was so bad that the, even the crickets weren't chirping. So exactly that caused some exactly. incongruency in my mind. And because it was incongruent, that that gap, if you will, is where the humor is. So once I connect those two things together, I like, oh, okay, I connect those two together. Now I can laugh at it. So there are different ways that I utilize the incongruency method. And one way was when I bent over in my speech, mm -hmm. that was actually a setup. So I bent over my shoes and one would think that, okay, he's just trying to look silly. That's more just like slapstick comedy where you're just trying to look funny, but not necessarily. So it did get a laugh when I actually did it, but the whole point was to set up the incongruency where I would say later on, do I look like a fool to you? <laughs> and that line was made stronger because there was incongruency because I'm thinking that I don't look like a fool, but obviously I look like a fool sitting there like, Oh man, that's hilarious. Yeah. Thank you. I, I had never thought of it in that context and hadn't heard that term yet. That, that is brilliant. Um, and I see your point. It's those, 
twists and turns that create comedy or comedic effect, right? When you take something that's tried and true, like you said, like the crickets, for example, or like you bending over to protect the shoes and people get like a really clear picture in their mind of something and you're adding this colorful way of all of a sudden, wait, that's not right. And that's what kind of makes it funnier, right? A uh, really interesting part of the process. So now let's let's talk about <laughs> what the key point of this episode was. We went off on a tangent together there. Um, the key point being that now, okay, so we're we're obviously all stay with stay at home orders, with the need to stay inside, which which we're both adhering to and we agree with, so that we can flatten the curve. This does present an opportunity, not criticizing. We're not saying to anyone, if you don't take this opportunity or like that meme that's going around, that if you don't come out of this with a skill or a new hobby or, or you know, a six pack abs or whatever, you haven't really used your time. You're just making excuses. By the way, the people who are posting that are usually the one just sitting on their couch with uh, potato chip crumbs all over their belly, right? Like, yeah, assholes, I'm, uh, you know. Anyways, but so we're not we're not being critical of anyone, but this does present now an opportunity. I think you and I both being like minded in this context agree that this is a great opportunity for you to develop that YouTube channel, to work on your side hustle, to, um, you know, present yourself, to work on your personal branding, to develop something unique if you choose to, no one's criticizing you. If you need to take a mental health break and just watch some Tiger King and, and zone out, no one's going to criticize you for that necessarily. But if you're looking to do these things, where would you start? What are, what are your best practices for at home creating a, a, a big boost to your personal branding? Quarantine for me started a little bit earlier because I had a cold. So I didn't want to go into the office because I didn't want to cough and then cause a panic every time I coughed. So I just stayed home. And I said I wasn't going to deal with the drama. And I stayed home about a week and a half longer than other people had. So the first I would say two weeks, they were incredibly lazy. I just uh, I said, Okay, I don't feel like getting up. I don't this may sound bad, but I don't feel like showering. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> hey, no I, shame I just, zone. Everybody's at home, you know. I became so lazy and lethargic. And then once it started to become a new normal, and I started to realize that, you know what, this isn't just going to be over in a week or two weeks or even three. This may be a multi month situation that we're dealing with here. So I said to myself, I need to be more productive. I need to do something. What are some of the things that I always said that I didn't have time to do? And one of the things that I always said that I didn't have time to do was just to sit down and write. So when I write out everything that I do, so I write out my script for my speeches, but I also write out scripts for my YouTube presentations and video presentations. So mm -hmm. I was just starting to just sit down and write things out, start planning and I started to think, okay, how do I want to increase my social media brand now? I now have the time. There's no excuse. I don't have to walk to a train station. I don't have to take a train. I don't have to basically take two hours out of my day back and forth because now I have 
that time just to sit down and do it. So what am I going to do with that extra time? How, how am I going to make that time productive? That is what I had to start thinking about. And so I just started recording videos. I started releasing content on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn, which is something that I really wanted to concentrate on because LinkedIn is such a great platform right now. Even now it's still hot and it's still getting a lot of engagement. Mm -hmm. But that is something that I had to consciously sit down and do. And it just came from, okay, I'm tired of being lazy and I need to do something to be productive now. But the benefit of it, when I started to do this and started releasing content, I started to realize that, hey, wait, a lot of other people are home right now. So a lot of other people are trying to consume this type of content. And then even being, uh, what's the word? You want to be opportunistic of certain mm -hmm. situations. So one video that I recently made on my YouTube channel was how to compete in a virtual how to compete in a virtual speech contest. Right. Because Toastmasters, they no longer are allowing people to meet in person. Mm -hmm. They want people just to meet online. But it's Toastmaster contest season right now. So there are people who don't know how to handle presenting virtually and they surely don't know how to go about competing in a speech contest online virtually so even though i am a world champion now so i'm ineligible to ever compete in the international speech contest again i thought to myself if i were still eligible what would i do and i put my thoughts on video and then i posted it on youtube and people just started to watch it and they really liked it it got to the point where Toastmasters International contacted me and said that they wanted to put that in their magazine to share with other people. Wow. So you just want to take those opportunities. So don't always see something as a negative. It's of course a great tragedy that we're facing right now. A lot of people are losing their lives and a lot of people are stressed out. A lot of people are overworked, especially on the front lines and the hospitals, but you have to see those opportunities for light, those opportunities to get to a better situation for yourself. So for me, it was concentrating on the, on YouTube, on my videos, and then seeing how I can help people through that medium. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I certainly appreciate, and I think users will get appreciation will get something of huge value from watching your YouTube series that you're, you're preparing where you'll be basically training people and coaching people to become world champion public speakers. Um, yeah. You're like the uh, Mickey, the Rocky Balboa or no, you're like Rocky Balboa and Creed, right? We, we made that reference earlier that I'll be uh, I'll be Creed and you'll be, you'll be Balboa in my corner kind of training <laughs> me to, uh, <laughs> to get out there and get my face pummeled every time I go out for a public speaking <laughs> event. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's really interesting. How are you developing the content? How are you planning it from a organizational perspective? Are you thinking, are you going to be, what's your consistency rate that you'll be releasing this content? Will you be using sort of a series format or will you be distributing contact? content on a uh, continual basis? What are you thinking right now? 
So the way that I am approaching it, it's similar to how I create my speech presentations. So I first start off with who's my audience. So for instance, that virtual contest video, I knew that my audience was going to be more targeted. So this wasn't necessarily going to be targeted to all public speakers. It wasn't even going to be targeted to everybody who's a member of Toastmasters. It was going to be targeted to people who are competing in the international speech contest. And it's also going to be targeted for people who may be organizing these contests and they want to make sure that they have a quality speech contest. So that's my audience. So I know who my audience is. So now when I'm creating the content, what do I want the audience to take away? So the central message or that detox step that I talked about before doesn't necessarily work as well with a YouTube video because there could be multiple points that you want your audience to take away, especially if you're mm. using a educational model. But the I just tried to summarize it as best as I could. So my summary was I want the audience to learn and adopt these steps that I'm going to share. And then I start listing out the different steps. I start thinking about what tips I would personally use if I were competing. And then I just try to craft that into a co somewhat coherent way. And then I review it. And that's when I start that editing process again. Now, the main difference from the way I present my speeches is that I don't necessarily record myself when I'm doing this. So I don't do a video or a, not a video. I do, I don't do a audio recording and I don't listen back to the audio recording to try to perfect it. Because if you try to do that with making videos, you're just going to take up so much time. It's going to take you about right. two months to release a three minute video. Right. right. So the thing that I started doing, I just started thinking about how I am going to perform this as I'm writing it. So I will write out short lines. And then when I'm reading over it again, I'm editing it with the thought that, okay, this is how I will present it. So when I actually get to the recording process now, I will actually have my script in front of me. And I'm just breaking it up into very, very small pieces. I'm going almost line after line after line of what I'm going to say. And that is how I do my presentations. So I have a certain editing style where it's jumpy. So I'm going back and forth to different positions on the screen. So I have all of that accounted for in my script. Got it. So okay. it's, yeah, that's the way that I approach it. Interesting. And so being even a little bit more practical than that, do you have, um, what is your literal process for writing? I know we talked about Jerry Seinfeld as an example. We talked about Judd Apatow in his master class. And these different people all have different processes. Like Jerry Seinfeld's very well known for being super disciplined in terms of content creation. He sits down and writes routinely every single day for the same amount mm -hmm. of time at a bare minimum so that he can just force himself, will himself to develop more and more and more content. Judd yeah. Apatow in his masterclass um, talks about how he doesn't per se do 
this, but that I, I forget who the individual was that gave him some advice and mentorship said, sit down in the same place at the same time every day and write your material because eventually that habit creates this thing where your brain, when you sit in that same place and in that same position and you're just every day at whatever time, you know, two o'clock, your brain gets used to, okay, now's writing time. And it kind of shifts into that mode, so to speak. So do you have a similar process to that? Or what's your method just organizationally? Do you keep a literal, I know you talked about Evernote. So do you only yep. use Evernote and always Evernote so that it's always in the same place? Do you write yeah. at the same time every day? How do you do all of that? So yeah, I keep Evernote. That is my go-to because I have a premium option so I can put it on all of the devices that I use. So it's really accessible for me. So I, if I'm tired of sitting at my computer, I can just take my phone. And one interesting way that I do perform my writing Sometimes I just don't feel like doing the actual typing process. Mm -hmm. So I will take my phone and I will use my voice to text feature. So for anybody who doesn't know what the voice to text feature is in any application where you can uh, put down text. So if you just do your, use your texting applications, if you use a documentation app like Evernote or Microsoft Word, your keyboard will come up. And when your keyboard comes up, by your spacebar, to the left of your spacebar, there will be a small microphone. That is the button to press if you want to activate the voice to text feature. And when you activate that, you start talking and your phone or your mobile device is going to start writing out whatever it is that you're saying. So this is a really great time saver for people who don't like the process of physically writing out a script or a speech. And that can just save you so much time. Now, the downside is you do have to speak a little bit unnaturally, especially if you want to include punctuation. So for instance, if I'm currently using my voice to text feature and I'm talking, once I end my sentences, I have to end it with a period. So I have to say period after that. Right. Right. That makes sense. And it'll work for any other punctuation mark. So if I'm asking a question, like, do you think this is good? Question mark. And it will type out the question mark. So you have to speak a little bit unnaturally, but I think from the time that you're able to save, that can just be great for you. Timing wise, I don't have a set time to write. It's basically whenever I feel like it especially nowadays where we're home all the time. So there's really no need to have as rigid of a schedule because I can just get on my computer and write whenever I feel like it now. Right. Even if I'm at work, like once I take a break, all I have to do is close a certain window and then I can just pull up my application. And I'll start writing again. So there is no set time that I have anymore. Uh, when I was writing out my speeches, my main writing time would be at night when I got home from work as well as in the mornings when I'm commuting to work. But right now, it's it's just whenever I feel like writing. Right. So how do you keep yourself motivated? Because I think, you know, many, many people, even successful professional people, um, talk about how the hardest part of writing is sitting down to write and to just kind of grind it out, this process that we're talking about. So how do you keep yourself, yeah. sorry, 
I'm getting a, a call. In. Sorry. So how do you keep yourself motivated on a regular basis to continue to just push yourself on a routine basis to, to generate more content, to massage the content? And let's face it, if we're being honest, it's never done in one writing session. Even if you wrote the whole first draft out, which would be rare to begin with, writing doesn't begin until you've rewritten several times probably, right? So yeah. how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep pushing yourself? What do you use to, to focus your, your mind? Well, with anything, you really want to set goals if you are going to motivate yourself. So you have to see a light at the end of the tunnel. So for all this work that you're doing, what's going to be the benefit that you're going to get from it? Or what is the benefit that you dream of getting from it? So for me, I have a goal right now. I simply want to get to 4,000 watch hours on YouTube. And I know in order to do that, I need to put out content. And I need to put out content that is going to keep people engaged. So that's motivating me to think about ways, hmm, how can I keep somebody engaged? So I will actually, actually just this past night, I was watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos, learning about how to create YouTube videos and how to keep them entertaining for your audience and keep that audience retention. So there are things that I'm now incorporating into my script that were based off of that. And that's even motivating for me because I have a goal that, okay, I want to increase my audience retention. This is how I'm going to do it. And now I'm implementing that strategy. And it's going to be a matter of experimenting with it and seeing if it works. And that is something that excites me because I like to see progress. So whether it's setting a goal, a big goal, like getting my 4,000 watch hours or a little goal mm -hmm. with how do I keep my audience engaged and how do I retain them? That is what will keep you motivated. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to, do you really want to do it or not? Good point. What are some of these new tips that you, you dug up recently, if you don't mind sharing with the audience that you might be implementing into your strategy coming up? And, and what do you think about them? Maybe add some of your own commentary to them. Yeah. So, when we look at a video, we think of concepts like branding. So we try to create these one-liners and these catchphrases. And one thing that I noticed, especially in my metadata, was that when I was trying to do this and I was trying to give an introduction on who I was, and it's taking a minute, but during that minute, I'm losing retention. So people aren't staying around during this time. So I keep seeing it. It's consistent. So I have to think to myself, something is off. The audience from that time that they click on the thumbnail to that first minute, they're saying that they're saying through their actions that I'm not giving them the value that was promised. So how do I address that? So in this case, I'm going to just try to get to the point as soon as possible and just stay on that topic to see if that will keep my audience retained a little bit longer. Interesting. Interesting. I see your point. I think that's really interesting how you're using some data analytics in reference to the personal branding content that you're creating and then sort of figuring out, okay, they're dropping off after this, you know, after this moment, you see the graph sort of plummet from in terms of who's sticking around to listen beyond that. 
So how do you get that to shift over more? And you think that a good pointer or advice is to maybe uh, deliver the high notes so that they'll know to stick around longer because that content's coming later. Yeah, and honestly, I kind of kicked myself because it's similar to writing a speech. You want to hook your audience in with something engaging. So if I were to break this down, how I break down a speech, my title is basically the thumbnail. So that is going to get people to click to engage with my content. So my, I give my title and it's catchy and they say, okay, what is this about? So once I do that, my next goal is to promise to deliver what I had in my thumbnail. So in this instance, in the speech, my title was an unbelievable story. So, so I said, okay, so I need to get to the point about an unbelievable story as soon as possible. So once I gave my my one-liner about my speech was only three words long, I then went on to say, but why is this story unbelievable? So basically reiterating that I'm going to get to the point that got you interested in the first place. So that's right. basically what I wasn't doing with my YouTube content. I was going on and on about these different concepts. I was going on about who I was. I'm Aaron Beverly, the 2019 world champion of public speaking. Okay, that's well and good, but the audience clicked for a certain reason. So I need to hurry up and get to the point and basically reemphasize the value that they originally clicked on. So for a virtual contest, one of my first words was, my name is Aaron Beverly. This is part two of how to compete in a virtual speech contest. And then let's get into the content. That's basically how I started. So that was a a second, the second part of the video series that I did on virtual speech contest. And what was interesting is that the amount of views may have been lower, but the retention was higher. Mm, interesting. So interesting. Really people interesting. were staying on longer to view the rest of the content than they were in the first one where I had a whole long introduction about what we were going to be going over. Interesting. So you, you, you're balancing it in some way, right? Because you're still giving them an overview. Obviously, this is part two. This is what we're going to be talking about. But boom, let's jump in. Let's look at this more readily and more quickly so that you can deliver. I guess, you know, uh, time is an extremely limited resource, but also people's attention is equally limited, maybe more so than time now. Um, so you really need to to make sure when you're developing content, for your audience, first and foremost, I think want to highlight the fact that your KYA, know your audience and your detox strategy is brilliant and is very applicable and transferable to a lot of these different mediums. And if people thought that way, they'd be a lot more successful to begin with. But once you think about that context, you have to also think about at some level, what is it that this individual's wrestling with in their minds in terms of attention span, what's going to grab them, how much attention do they have? If you're going to try to target, you know, people who who have a more limited attention span, then you really have to take that into into your thought process for developing your content, right? Cool. 
Awesome, Aaron. Well, um, for those of you who are listening or watching this uh, uh, YouTube on YouTube or as a podcast, you can check out Aaron's content again on YouTube by searching for Aaron Beverly, Aaron W. Beverly, your Aaron W. Aaron W. Beverly, your speech mentor. I got it out eventually, right? Um, so it, it, this is a new channel that you're developing to provide everyone with advice, coaching, mentorship on how to become a better public speaker. Wonderful, wonderful content that you're delivering. You are the master in my eyes for sure. So I, uh, I wholeheartedly bow to you and, uh, and consider myself your disciple. Hopefully this will, uh, oh, hopefully you won't, you won't live to regret incepting this idea in me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course. Um, <laughs> we'll see where we are. Uh, all right, Aaron. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on, for giving us so much wonderful information and guidance and also for sharing your experiences and your time with us. We really appreciate it. How can, um, how can people find you? How can people reach out if they need advice or are looking for help with developing their speeches or their content? First, you can reach out to me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube. I am very active in the direct messaging and the comment section of YouTube. If you are able and you can get a hold of me on Facebook, you can go there as well. But if you are interested in speech coaching or mentorship, direct mentorship, you can reach out to me at Aaron at speakandbu.com. So that's A-A-R-O-N at speakandbu, S-P-E-A-K-A-N-D-B-E-Y-O-U.com. Awesome. Yeah. And we, you can look in the show notes either in, in YouTube, if you look in the description or on our webpage or in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this podcast, I'll make sure to put that information there to make it easy for people to cut, copy, paste, and email you directly and quickly. Thanks again, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Stay safe, stay healthy. Looking forward to seeing you in person uh, as soon as possible. All right, Tony. Thank you. Thanks, man. Have a good one. You too.